Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. Coming up, Jeffrey Epstein received a slap on the wrist a decade ago for sexually exploiting teenage girls. He was recently arrested on the more serious charges of sex trafficking. What is sex trafficking and how do you recognize it? The attention is going to come in the form of NYPD power. And that is a problem. That's always a problem. Even if the person who's being arrested has done horrible things, you know, when we divert money to law enforcement rather than putting it towards the prevention of vulnerabilities and the vulnerabilities that lead to people to be trafficked, um, we're just missing the mark. This month, registered sex offender, former Dalton teacher, and incredibly wealthy degenerate Jeffrey Epstein was rearrested. Back in 2008, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from a minor. This time, the accusation was sex trafficking. But what exactly is sex trafficking, and why is it such a rampant problem in the United States? To help us answer those questions and talk about how widespread the issue is here in New York, we're joined by Aya Tasaki, the Policy and Advocacy Manager at Womankind. Thanks so much for joining us, Aya. Thank you. And Abigail Swenstein, Staff Attorney with the Exploitation Intervention Project at the Legal Aid Society. Welcome to Women to BK. Thank you. So maybe a question for you, Abby. What exactly is sex trafficking from a legal standpoint? So sex trafficking has both a federal definition and a New York State criminal code definition. Um, essentially boiled down, what it means is that somebody else is profiting financially um, from inducing someone else to engage in prostitution through force, fraud, or coercion, or where the person engaging in sex work is under 18 years old. I see. So there's a financial gain component unless the person is a minor. Yes. And is that what they are potentially going to get Jeffrey Epstein on? So it's my understanding that um, Jeffrey Epstein was indicted specifically on trafficking of a minor and that when I was reading the indictment, it seemed like um, he was he'd been indicted simply on the fact that he was paying for underage sex workers and and that he was then using those underage sex workers to recruit other underage sex workers. So in his particular case, um, I believe that it's the recruitment of underage trafficking victims that is really where he's going to be getting into trouble. I see. So he already was convicted on this charge of soliciting a prostitute, an underage prostitute. But it's the fact that they then turned around and recruited other underage girls that is the source of this new indictment? I believe so. Okay. Many of the young women were young white girls under the age of 18 who were vulnerable in some way. Aya, is this a population that is especially vulnerable to human trafficking? I think that we as a society tend to fall into this mistake of trying to say that a community or a population is especially vulnerable to being trafficked or being exploited. And I think we definitely cannot say that about, you know, race or ethnicity. We, we just can't talk about it based on those terms. I think it's just really important to um, talk about what makes an individual or a community vulnerable. And a lot of times you have to look at the factors that it's about racism. It's about um, just economic situations. And oftentimes it's it's just not helpful if we're really serious about fighting trafficking, if we're really serious about um, talking about sexual violence. Um, it's just 
really doesn't help to talk about, oh, this particular community is vulnerable, this particular co community is less vulnerable. I think it's, it's really about being able to talk about bigger structural issues and systemic issues that exist in society. And it just is much more complex than saying that um, let's pay attention to this particular race category. Or, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if that's not helpful, mm -hmm. thinking about uh, people who are more vulnerable in terms of race, but you also say that racism mm -hmm. is a problem. Can you talk to me a little bit about that distinction and how we should be thinking about it? Sure. I mean, so when I... <laughs> When I think about racism in the context of um, just anti-trafficking work, I do think a lot about criminalization of communities. Um, so, for example, if data is showing that, oh, for some reason we're getting a lot of Asian women coming through the court system, right? And look, this like Asian women are being identified at X rate higher for being trafficked. Then my question always is, all right, but that number alone or that data point alone is really just such a limited window into the situation because then you have to start asking, what is the rhetoric that's happening, right? And if we're talking about the Asian po population, the reality is that there is heightened criminalization and policing of massage parlors, for example. And that's not coming from any reality that massage parlors are a hub, like the main hub for trafficking. It's just it's based on, again, racism and the racism encompassing p probably a myth about what Asian women are like or what kind of situations they're coming from. Um, it could also be a myth about just a lack of understanding of what a massage parlor looks like or what an economic ecosystem within a certain community looks like. And then just taking that and saying, all right, well, there's got to be trafficking happening, therefore we're going to up policing. And then, of course, then if you're upping policing in a certain community or an area, then, of course, arrests are going to go up because, again, we can't pretend like policing happens in a complete vacuum where there is no racism or there is no preconceived notions around you right. know, uh, things. So I see. Um, so the distinction you're making is, for example, mm -hmm. that if you look at the number of black people who are arrested on marijuana possession. Mm -hmm. uh, one might extrapolate, oh, well, black mm -hmm. people are more likely to smoke marijuana than people of other races. But actually what we're seeing is an increased um, policing and criminalization of certain communities. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the one of the things to that point is that the girls, at least the now women um, who have come forward and said, I was sexually exploited by Jeffrey Epstein, are white. Do you think and maybe this is a question for you, Abby, do you think the fact that these looked like white girls with braces um, perhaps allowed him to fly under the radar more because they weren't who we think of as, quote unquote, trafficked individuals? I mean, I think it's what he looks like that allowed him to get under the mm -hmm. radar mm -hmm. um, and the money that he had and the privilege that he walked around with and the people he associated with. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't I see these ads in airports like if you see something, say something and there's a picture of sometimes a white girl, sometimes not a white girl dressed a little younger. And we're supposed to extrapolate from that, that if we see a young girl in an airport that we're supposed to what notify the police that someone's being trafficked. I mean, that's absurd. It's a joke. And so, I, you know, I think the problem is, is not that people weren't noticing with Jeffrey Epstein. It's that he was just allowed to get away with it. Right. I mean, he was 
arrested. He was prosecuted. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office was incredibly lenient on him compared to to other defendants that don't look like him. And I think it's exploded right now. But, you know, he lived under the radar for quite a while, I think, because of how he presents physically. Mm -hmm. To that point, I think when we think of human traffickers, of people who exploit women. We think of people who are, you know, maybe bringing women in from a different country. Um, Often we think of non-white people. Do you think that Jeffrey Epstein and the fact that he was enormously wealthy and white and privileged, do you think that this will start blowing the door open on other rich white men who may be exploiting young women. Like there was an interview with a doorman in the post who was like, oh, you know, this is degenerates row up here. Like, you know, I see terrible things happening all around me. Oh God, I don't know. I mean, I like to think that like Park Avenue is not like a degenerate row of sex trafficking. But I mean, if it is and there are minors that are being exploited, like I would hope that that would end. Unfortunately, I think what happens is that people are going to turn to the to law enforcement to solve this quote unquote problem. Um, there might be more attention and attention might be good, but the attention is going to come in the form of NYPD power. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. That's always a problem. Even if the person who's being arrested has done horrible things, you know, when we divert money to law enforcement rather than putting it towards the prevention of vulnerabilities and the vulnerabilities that lead to people to be trafficked, um, we're just missing the mark. Io, why is empowering the NYPD to crack down on this problem? Why is that not the best solution? And if it isn't, what is a better solution? How much time do you have? (laughs) That's very, that's, yes, exactly. Great. Let's see how far we get. (laughs) I mean, I mean, we just can't pretend like we are operating in a vacuum where NYPD is not coming from a place of racism or classism or all the isms. And, and, and that's, and that's also, in part admitting that we, even the three of us around this table, right, like regardless of the the quote unquote good work that we're doing, we're also not so completely separate from all the isms that that exist in the world. Of course, and everyone has bias. Exactly. And then so then we have to then admit that NYPD is not also not operating in a vacuum. And so I think one of the frustrations that I've had is why can't that in itself be like, why can't we just take that in itself seriously and say NYPD and the way that we've been policing, it just does not work full stop. Right. And then saying, why do we have to wait around for such a picture perfect solution that will be the alternative to this policing when we're saying, no, what's happening right now is actively increasing the harm to to folks who are who have been trafficked or are vulnerable. So if we're taking the example of a massage parlor being being shut down in the wake of a, a police raid, right? A lot of times the workers who are working at the massage parlors it may not be the best workplace ever, and there may be exploitation happening. But for a lot of folks, that is the only source of income that they have. And why does the answer to that have to be, because you are in a bad workplace situation, we're going to shut the massage parlor down and you deal with your own um, economic situation, when in fact, shutting that place down is 
pushing that individual further to a vulnerable place of actually being trafficked. So it's the question is about how do we create a safe space for individuals to actually access that wisdom and then put it together with the actual rights that exist in the world. And and instead of just saying this is a bad workplace for you Mm -hmm. and we're just going to take that away and you 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 know, good luck. Abby, I think one of the things that's really complicated about this issue is the idea of agency and women's agency over their own bodies. And. I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine that women might be in a situation where they're being sexually exploited or where somebody is making money off of um, their bodies and that they have some choice in that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about this nuance that it isn't just like entirely black and white, that as Aya said, that some people may be in a bad working situation, but actually want to stay there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, first, I just want to draw the distinction, right? Like we're we're moving on from Jeffrey Epstein and we're no longer talking about children, mm-hmm. right? Like we're talking about sure. adults. Yeah. Yes. Um, so many of my clients, I would say the, the vast majority of them have really always been struggling with poverty um, and that sometimes people make a choice that sex work is the most lucrative, most flexible, most empowering work that they can find. Um, Navigating your way through the public benefit system in New York City is dehumanizing, demoralizing. Um, I have have clients right now that just say, I I haven't been doing sex work for years, but I'm going back because I cannot be rejected by my benefits officer one more time. I just cannot spend another day there. Um, and that's a choice, right? It's it's an adult woman saying that I have options and I'm weighing my options and I'm doing what I feel like is is the better choice for me right now. People make those choices all of the time, right? Like people go to fancy schools and they take their degrees and they go into some field of of their work and they harm other people, right? And, and we don't question their agency and, and their choice in, in the work that they chose, choose to do in polluting the environment or ruining, the, ruining their economy. Um, but we, we decide to say to someone who is living at the margins that we don't approve of the way that they've chosen to take care of themselves. Um, and so I, I think that what what we really need to do is is just take a st- step back and realize that I think so much of this it's because we want to control what people do with their bodies, especially women, but of course it's not just women, um, and that we're not as a society comfortable with someone saying that like I'm going to use my body to keep my head above water. Mm-hmm. I I think that there has been a shift among maybe even centrist populations um, who are now saying, okay, well, maybe prostitution shouldn't be a crime. We shouldn't punish those women because they're victims. Um, Aya, what is the problem in thinking of people as as victims? I think framing somebody as a victim never has really worked. So when you're coming from just a string of experiences and trauma oftentimes that's couched in somebody completely violating and taking away or um, demoralizing your self-determination and autonomy, then then it's our job really as service providers to honor the fact that A, that they even came to us and disclosed that trauma. And then at least the beginning point of what we could offer is to say, um, that we honor every choice that you're making. And 
and when we say choice, we're talking about even if you had to make a decision between two of the worst choices ever, mm -hmm. you still made a choice to do this mm -hmm. thing. And we honor that choice. And our job is to make sure that you are as safe as possible when you are making that choice. And, and how does Womankind do that? What are some of the services that you offer? We serve everybody across the lifespan, meaning we have um, services for children, youth, and then also we have a special um, program for elders as well. We have um, we have supportive counseling, so one-on-one -on -one counseling. We have um, two emergency shelters. We call them residences because, you know, we we believe in homes, not just shelter. Um, and we also have a 24-hour helpline, which um, we offer in 18 Asian languages and dialects, plus Spanish and English. Um, we also have an economic empowerment program. One of the things that we really pride ourselves in is that our programming really does come from um, the voices of the survivors. And a lot of times their needs are very much based in what their bodies are telling them. So um, a lot of like holistic um, trauma-informed yoga, um, a lot of acupuncture, those kinds of things are really, really important. And also community space for folks to connect with each other in not just verbal ways, but um, across languages, really, just to share space to whether it be drawing, um, whether it be watching a movie together um, in different languages. We really value those kinds of community trust because without the trust, the support really doesn't go very far. And Abby, what about the exploitation intervention project? How does one intervene in exploitation? <laughs> uh, so I'm a public defender. I work at the Legal Aid Society. Um, and our unit specifically advocates for trafficking survivors and sex workers in the criminal legal system. And so not, of all, not all of our clients are exploited sexually, but we believe that all of our clients are exploited because of systemic racism, sexism, and law enforcement um, is also a form of exploitation, law enforcement interaction. Um, and so for us, that really means helping you get the best possible outcome on your criminal case. Um, you know, first and foremost, my clients come to me because they're arrested. Um, so whether they're arrested for prostitution or they're arrested for a robbery, like my number one job is to make sure they don't go to jail, make sure they don't have a criminal record um, and fight for them for that. We work with social workers and immigration attorneys and paralegals um, to really try to show the prosecutor's office that our clients are people. They're not just defendants. They didn't just do something once. They have a whole history, very often a lengthy trauma history, but not always. Um, and we put that into context and fight for our clients to get out of the criminal legal system as fast as they can. To the point of why are we arresting people in the first place? Aya, you're on the steering committee of mm -hmm. Decrim NYC. Mm -hmm. Will you tell me a little bit about what that is? Sure. So Decrim NY um, is a coalition of at least, I think at this point, probably close to 30 organizations, um, service providers, um, advocacy groups, um, legal aid, and it also consists of individuals who may be unaffiliated, so um, current and former um, folks who trade sex in some way. The three pillars that we have is to decriminalize, um, decarcerate, and destigmatize. So the decriminalizing part is is really about uh, taking, taking away uh, laws that criminalize um, people who are trading sex as well as people who purchase sex. Um, and this is 
again, all between, just between consenting adults. We're not interested in touching any of the trafficking, labor or sex trafficking uh, laws. We're not interested in trying to change anything about, you know, minors who are being exploited. Um, so that's the decriminalizing part. And then the decarcerate part, I think, um, is also equally important, which is to really um, untangle individuals from the criminal legal system. Um, so that, that could look like vacating their or criminal record relief for their past convictions related to prostitution charges mainly. Um, and also the destigmatization part, um, again, I think is uh, really, really important. There needs to be a narrative shift around that to say that this is really an economic justice issue, this is really a racial justice issue, it's a gender justice issue, and also it's a disability justice issue. We live especially in, in a state and a city where it, it is a community of people who are surviving and thriving within very unique economic ecosystems. So the conflation of sex trafficking, uh, individuals who are trafficked and individuals who are um, trading sex by choice, uh, it has come to a head in FOSTA-SESTA, which I think is one of the most insidious pieces of legislation passed in recent years that really makes the most vulnerable populations even more vulnerable. Can you guys talk a little bit about how it does that and how something that on the surface sounds really great, that it's going to stop sex trafficking, um, actually has made it harder for your clients and the people that you work with uh, to to live their lives? I mean, I think the reality is that it has actually affected people, right? Regardless of what some people might say that, oh, it's just like a few people who have been affected. I think it's actually affected mm, a whole, yeah, sure. Sure. whole group of people. Let, let me pause right there just to say maybe, Abby, you could tell us what FOSTA-SESTA is for people who aren't familiar with this legislation, and then we'll come back to you, Aya. I will do my best. Okay. Um, so it's two pieces of legislation that criminalize the advertising of sexual services on the internet um, with the guise that it will reduce trafficking. Um, and essentially, I think it was really aimed at websites like Backpage to hold them criminally liable um, for the sale of underage women. Right. It's essentially saying um, that the person who sold the gun or manufactured the gun can be held accountable yeah. for the crime committed with the gun. Yeah. Um, and so this has had repercussions for sites like Backpage, Craigslist, mm -hmm. um, other servers that have been uh, both hosting ads, but also hosting services for sex workers to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. And I, you were saying that actually this has impacted a tremendous percentage of the population that you work with. Yeah, and, and I think this is one of those things where um, it will it will show its impact over the course of time too, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's what's, again, like really like beyond frustrating. It's just like, all right, do we, we have the community that's actually impacted saying, this is how it's hurting us, but do we, are we waiting around for number of dead people to mm -hmm. say this is actually harmful. Mm -hmm. and, and I think something like FOSTA-SESTA really brings to light what happens when you are trying, you are um, creating legislation without having the voices of the people who are actually going to be impacted. Mm -hmm. Why can't we invite everybody to the table to say, we, none of us wants violence, none of us wants to be trafficked. Why can't we all come together and say, this is how we're going to come up with a solution instead of lawmakers making decisions mm -hmm. for a community saying, well, what you're doing is inherently wrong and 
by the way, we're going to make this law without having any knowledge or any input from you. Right, because we know better than you do. Exactly. Just in, in and of itself, it's just a it's a law enforcement tool, yeah. right? Like it's just to go after the web the web host. But if people want to engage in prostitution, they're going to engage in prostitution. Mm-hmm. And if someone wants to exploit someone for their own financial gain, they're going to find a way to exploit someone for their own financial gain. So in the end, mm-hmm. it's, it's really just harmed uh, vulnerable people. Yeah. And how would decriminalizing prostitution actually help the most vulnerable populations, uh, people who are being exploited, minors, people who are engaging in sex work against their will? I think what it would mean is that my clients wouldn't have inappropriate sexual interactions with police officers. (laughs) Undercover officers that make prostitution arrests they live by their own set of rules and or there are no rules. We've been asking for them at Legal Aid for quite some time. They engage in all sorts of inappropriate sexual contact um, with clients. Um, They say sexually degrading things to our clients. They are constantly misgendering trans folk and generally All of those interactions are the baseline, and then our clients get arrested, and it just fuels this distrust of law enforcement. Um, And what it means is that clients don't actually want to go to the police when they need them. What studies have shown in other countries is that people's Um, The health outcomes really go up when prostitution is decriminalized because the stigma decreases. um, And so people are more likely to seek out the health services that they need, both mental and physical health services. People can have more autonomy um, when they are not under constant fear of being arrested. And it would mean that people weren't in fear of having a criminal record. So if people stopped getting criminal records for prostitution, when someone does decide that they want to do something else for their lives, and if someone does a background check, it wouldn't come up as them having a prostitution history, mm-hmm. which is very beneficial. That's significant. All right. Well, Abby, Aya, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 